was an interesting change of pace. You should have just finished up our first supplemental episode. That's right. We decided that episode 11, which was about Antoine Probst, could do with some dramatic or melodramatic readings of the primary source material. Because when we were reading the book, The Life, Confession and Atrocious Crimes of Antoine Probst, I think at one point I said to you, oh my God, we should just create an audiobook of this book and be done. Like, we shouldn't even say anything. <laughs> right, but it is over 100 pages long. Yeah, and some of it is better than other parts of it. So uh, we picked what we thought were the most interesting parts that weren't covered in episode 11. And with our friend Chris Brock, we recorded those. And you recorded a lot of the narration parts before you left for Canada this week. I had no idea what the final product would really sound like. I I just had to, I I think I dubbed those in the night before I flew out. Yeah, I had a vision. I was like, Matt, just speak this into a microphone and I'm going to record this with Chris, the dialogue. I'm I'm always, I I have this thing when I travel or when I have like a big meeting and work where I just can't sleep anyway. Sure. So it it worked out. (laughs) I, I didn't need to to go to bed yeah. on time. Are you are you, you passive aggressively guilting me no, for giving you extra work? Telling, telling it like it is. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're only going to do supplemental episodes every now and again. Um, but welcome back to the real bog house. The you know the real shit. <laughs> We've had a really another busy week. My God, we say that every fucking week, but I'm still riding high from the concert last night. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. So the Walt Whitman concert that uh, you mentioned a few weeks ago finally happened. Yeah. Uh, That was this past Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lyric Fest, which is this amazing organization here in Philadelphia that does concerts of art songs and commissions a lot of new art songs from composers as well, had this Walt Whitman project because he's 200 years old this year. And uh, I was commissioned to write a piece for that. I think I mentioned it in the Quakers and Slavery episode because I had to do a Walt Whitman setting and it went better than I could even have hoped. I mean, I had high hopes for this piece, but Rayanne Bryce Davies, who was the mezzo who sang, oh my god. Oh, she blew the roof off oh the building. This was at the Academy of Vocal Arts, yeah, uh, which is a wonderful setting as it is. Oh, um, but, but she whew. sang the hell Ooh. out of my piece and that voice, oh my god and the other the instrumentalists as well was oh it was it was a whole moving piece of machinery like everybody was so into it the piano was literally moving across the floor they were hitting it so hard and people were crying which i always (laughs) tell people as a composer actually my main goal is to make people cry it's actually a very sadistic profession and the more people who cry the better so several people came up to me and told me that they were in tears after my piece which i count as an absolute victory and if you're listening to this as soon as it comes out and you're living in the greater new york city area there's actually a performance on april the 9th uh tuesday night i think it's you know pay what you will by donation in a church and they're doing the entire song set so if you have the opportunity Take it, get out there and see this because it is incredible. It's worth it for Rayon's voice alone, I yeah. swear to God. So that um, you can find out more information about that at lyricfest.org. 
Incidentally, I also recorded an episode of their podcast, an interview with their artistic director, Suzanne Duplantis. If you Google Lyric Fest podcast, you'll come up with their podcast page. And I talk a lot about how I compose things, why I composed that piece and what it means to me. And I also talk a little bit about the bog house. So if you're interested in, you know, composer talk. You can listen to that. <laughs> we also spent some time at Arch Enemy Arts. Uh, it was the seven-year anniversary of the super gothy and super awesome art gallery over on Arch Street here in Philadelphia yeah, that so we spoke a, about, I think, in our third episode. But I think so. Um, Lauren Aliche, who is the daughter of our contractor, Larry Aliche, who I really hope we get on the show one of these days. Larry, <laughs> if you're out there, we're going to contact you and get you on the show. The world needs to hear your voice. Um, but Lauren is the curator for this gallery, and she is so awesome and has the most amazing eye. We actually met up with Mike Van Helder, who you may know from the photos of us that we've been posting uh he's been the photographer for the bog house and i think he's got an upcoming podcast himself movie versus expert we're hanging out and catching up mike has actually been doing some awesome detective work for us yeah mike works for the muda museum here in town which is an incredible museum attached to the college of physicians it is a medical oddities museum which is so far up my alley it's not even (laughs) funny it's the coolest creepiest but awesomest place to go i recommend whenever there are visitors to philadelphia i recommend the muda museum like in my top five places to go there's nothing else like it and uh it's it's all about science it's all about how weird people are and gross the human body is which it totally is um but mikey has access to archives, medical archives, going way back. It turns out Antoine Probst, as I think we mentioned in the last episode, was autopsied by Jefferson Medical College. And there were reports in newspapers that his skeleton was retained by that college and displayed in their museum. Now, the Jefferson Medical Museum no longer exists, But I thought if anybody could hunt down what happened to Antoine Proop's skeleton, it might be Mike. So Mike is currently digging around. He found us the original autopsy report for Antoine Proopst. But we're going to keep digging and see how far he gets. And if Antoine's corpse still exists (laughs) somewhere. We're going to get a picture of it. We're going to find it. We'll see. We'll see. Who knows? Since we're talking about museums, this is probably a good place to talk about the Wintertour Museum, which is this wonderful place in Delaware that I first became aware of when researching the artifacts that we dug up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually have several complete pieces from the same you know, manufacturer or collection as some of the ones that we found here. Yeah. But we've been so busy with building the house and putting all this stuff together. We haven't made time to get down there. We've been but, talking about going there for literally years. Yeah. Like, literally years. We're like, oh, we should go there this summer. We should totally hang out at the Winter Tour because it's so relevant to what we're doing. And then this week, I got an email from WHYY that said that Antiques Roadshow is coming to the Winter Tour this summer. And literally every single person we've talked to about what we've done here (laughs) 
has suggested that we go on the Antiques Roadshow. Which I always roll my eyes about. I've watched a lot of Antiques Roadshows, so I know the drill and it sort of seemed a little cheesy to me. But then when I saw this email that combined these two things, I said, okay, we're going to throw a hat into the ring. I don't know if this is going to pan out, but I put an application in telling the story of how we found these artifacts in 250-year-old human shit. And I'm hoping that that application story knocks their socks off and they invite us to go on the show. Yeah, Yeah, the the whole contest is about like a good story behind what you've brought out. I mean, mean, you've made it 13 episodes. Uh, Right. I I think hopefully by now. I, you would agree that this is probably a pretty good story. I think so. <laughs> I mean, you know, I hope people out there think so. Anyway, if you know any producers at WGBH in Boston... You who should are, tell them to listen to the ballcast. Yeah, just I, don't be pushy. You don't have to, like, spam them or anything. Just, like, talk about how addicted you are to <laughs> our show and how it's re- it would be really cool if they subscribe to us, speaking of subscribing, you should all subscribe to us on iTunes because apparently that's how they work out their podcast charts. I don't know. So if you're not a subscriber to our show, you should click the subscribe button. That would really help us out. And while I was at work one day, I saw a tweet go out. Melissa actually made a T-shirt from the back cover of the Antoine Probst book. Yeah. We have our first official merchandise, a t-shirt on Teespring, which we've posted links to on social media, but I'll send it out again. It is the Frenchman t-shirt and features a drawing of Antoine Probst being arrested by Dorsey with the quote, no, me are a Frenchman. So if you enjoy that little in-joke as much as we do... <laughs> I really just designed the t-shirt because I wanted one. Yeah, it was, it was really, we just made it for us. <laughs> but maybe you want one too and you want to support what we're doing and you want a really fun t-shirt. And if you don't want to spend money but would like to get a little something from the Bog House, we actually have a whole pile of postcards that uh, feature the photography of the previously mentioned Mike Van Helder. Yeah, quick shout out here. Fireball Printing Company is the company that I use to get those postcards printed. They are an indie company here in Philadelphia. I've been using them for 10 years and they're my favorite printing company for jobs that I can't do in-house. I get all my posters done through them. I get my score covers done through them. They're really awesome. And they reached out to us recently and said they were fans of the show. So so it's like a two-way street. It's yeah, pretty great. I love them. They love us. If you need stuff printed, you should go to fireballprinting.com and they include Fireball candies in the box when they deliver the print job to you, which they do very quickly. It's like cheap, good, and fast. Yeah, they're very artist-friendly. We, we got to know them because of the Fringe Festival and they had a Fringe special. Anyway... Check them out. They do cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, and if and you're in Philly, like they deliver practically overnight. And if you want a postcard from us for a limited time, if you DM me your mailing address on any of our social media accounts, you have to follow us first and then DM me your mailing address. I will put a postcard in the mail to you on the condition that you take a picture of it and put it on your social media and tell all your friends and all of the rest of that. I am. Yeah. <laughs> That would be really awesome. Okay, speaking of fans, 
A fan reached out to us a couple of weeks ago. She's actually a composer. Her name is Jess, and you can find her on Twitter and Instagram as Orpheus Wannabe. Get it? It's a music reference. It's pretty great. Anyway, she wanted to give us a little context on part of the story in episode nine, where Enyan Williams travels up to Massachusetts and stops by Salem and is surprised by the attitude of the women there. Uh, Jess knows a little bit about this, so I'm going to throw it to Jess. Hey, my name's Jess, and I just love the bog house. Like, absolutely diehard love it. It speaks to me both as the daughter of a huge Revolutionary War history buff, and then me as someone who I spent my, like, my first jobs were working on or around the Freedom Trail. I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, which is a pretty famous town for specific reasons. I will confirm that the high school's mascot was a witch. But what I found really interesting was Enyan's description of the women in Salem. And I think it totally speaks to the time period because at that point in time, Salem was at the peak of both the cod fishing industry and the whaling industry. And Salem had become this complete hub for this type of labor. And so the people that lived and worked around Salem were getting totally rich from the cod fishing industry and the whaling industry, which were both, you know, vastly important at the time. Cod was a huge source of food and whales were used for oil. So Salem at that time was incredibly wealthy. So it makes sense that these women were like very high society, very well to do and very curious about someone from out of town. The other thing that was interesting is how independent the ladies seem to be in Enyan's description. And it makes complete sense to me because not only were these women like the peak of high society and filthy rich, but they also were left alone for months because their husbands or brothers or, you know, fathers were off making bank whaling or cod fishing. So these women were super independent, super educated, and were definitely interested in like a hotshot like Enyan. But anyway, love the bog house and come visit Salem anytime. Oh, and Marblehead like still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much Jess that's oh that's awesome to hear uh, hear it from somebody who who's been there yeah I can't wait to come and visit us here in Philadelphia um but it's time to turn from nice time stories to shit time stories <laughs> because we got some real bad stuff happening in the coming episode take a seat you're in the bog house What you're listening to is the sound from an installation called Unsung, which I found myself at in early October 2016. 
this took place in a tunnel underneath the Reading Viaduct, an old elevated set of train tracks running through the Callow Hill District of Philadelphia, which is a few blocks west of where we are. It's this super ethereal piece that not only featured this sound installation and audio sculpture, but also had projections of uh, women from various eras in the neighborhood being projected on the really, really nasty walls under the viaduct through fog. Um, It was a really incredible scene that was one night only. And I happened to be one of the women who was projected on the wall. I was tapped to participate in the project as an actor and a vocalist contributing to the raw material that Nadia Botello turned into this sound installation. And it was such a cool project. It was happening at the same time that we were digging these sherds out of the dirt in our construction. And... There's kind of an interesting backstory to why Nadia chose these particular subjects to talk about in this installation. There's an 18th century sex worker, there's the wife of an Irish railroad worker, an undocumented immigrant, that was me, and descriptions of houses of pleasure. When she was first invited to do this installation, the organization that was commissioning it from her arranged for a historian to come and talk about the district with her and tell her about, you know, how the Callow Hill neighborhood developed. He gave this big presentation. He was an expert at all of the things that had happened in the neighborhood. And by the end of the presentation, she said, wow, you haven't talked about a single woman. You haven't mentioned at all in this presentation any women. Like, where were the women during this period of history? And he said, oh, well, you know, there were some sex workers and some undocumented immigrants and, uh, you know. And that's it. I mean. Some wives. <laughs> nothing remarkable. And she said, great, my installation is going to be about those women, which is <laughs> such, uh, I love that story so much. I'm like, this is this is absolutely something that speaks to me as an artist and a feminist. So I good. love it. So one of the things that she focused on and which I learned about during the process of being involved in this installation was an 1849 book. A Guide to the Stranger, or Pocket Companion for the Fancy, containing a list of the gay houses and ladies of pleasure in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Essentially, this book is Yelp for brothels. (laughs) It is available online. You can see it for free at the Library Company, which we've already discussed. Yep. Daniel Williams was the treasurer back in the day. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) And uh, it basically goes through and lists all of the sex workers who were plying their trade in Philadelphia at the time. It gives you their address and it gives you a review of them. Yeah, there are descriptions about like really nice places where they sing to you and they're trained on musical instruments. For example, Miss Mary Blessington at number three Wood Street This young and beautiful creature is as snug a lump of flesh and blood as ever man pressed to his bosom. She keeps a bedhouse of the first class. Like, you know, nice, nice place to visit. He says... Seems really nice. Right. (laughs) Some of the places are not so nice. And he talks about when the landlady might be rude or, you know, other places he describes as awful pest houses. (laughs) 
And of course, as soon as I discovered this book, I leafed through it to find our neighborhood. Oh, yeah, we had to find what was going on in our corner of the neighborhood. Our neighborhood did not have brothels that were important or nice enough to <laughs> list individually. <laughs> as a matter of fact, in one particular place, actually, uh, they quote, in Willow Street, near front, and in alleys leading therefrom, houses of mean repute are numerous. <laughs> That's all it says. That's all it says. It, it won't even bother telling you anything except those are really bad places. Yeah, don't go there. <laughs> the area where the Rocky Montage starts out was actually just not the place to be. It was essentially right around the corner from where 17 years later Antoine Probst was visiting sex workers after mass murdering a family down south. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, Probst didn't actually kill anyone while he was in the neighborhood. He just spent other people's money there. Right. After killing people down south. Yeah. <laughs> right. But don't worry. There's plenty of murder going on around here anyway. Um, let's introduce you to someone who facilitated some of those murders. A man named William Entwistle, who uh, became the owner of 105 Callow Hill Street between the years 1870 and 1884. And a man that really we hold responsible for taking an already pretty bad block and really fucking it up. Yeah. Can I just also say William Entwistle is such a fucking 19th century Dickensian name? Like, really? <laughs> Billy Entwistle. <laughs> Billy. <laughs> he, he was English, in case you couldn't tell by I know. the name. Apologies to Entwistles <laughs> out there. I know there are actually people called Entwistle because I've seen them on Facebook. Anyway, in 1869, Entwistle... An Englishman owned and operated a boarding house at 537 North Front Street. Which is across the road, actually, from what is now Delilah's. Right, uh, Delilah's, strip the strip club that has its own episode of Forensic Files <laughs> right. because of an incredible murder that happened that was related to Delilah's. Anyway, one of his tenants, one of Entwistle's tenants back in 1869 was an English thief, quote, an English thief called Alfred Scarborough. The reason I know this is because there's an article in the 1869 August the 4th edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer, which reads, Entwistle, being under the influence of liquor, was lying asleep in his room when his son, a little boy, saw Scarborough go up to him and put his hand in his pocket and walk away, though he could not see whether he took anything. Scarborough was then known to go into the cellar and shortly afterwards went to bed. The child apprised his mother of what he had seen, and she repeated it to her husband, receiving therefore a cruel beating. What? <laughs> so, yeah, his his wife went and said, hey, this guy took your money and... And his first reaction is to beat the shit out of her. Okay, cool, cool, good, good, okay. Mm, good start. Mm -hmm. uh, after beating his wife, uh, he went and looked and found out that she actually wasn't lying like he had presupposed. He learned that he had been robbed, and so... Therefore, he caused Scarborough to be arrested. Uh, it's funny phrasing, but it's the newspaper. Um, at the preliminary hearing before the magistrate, the prisoner denied his guilt in this matter point blank, but acknowledged that he had previously been a thief in the service of the prosecutors, stealing goods and selling to them. By the prosecutors, he means the Entwistles. So, okay, so, so unpacking this, Entwistle is an alcoholic who passes out early in the evening and is unconscious while his child just does whatever. He beats his wife and admits as much. And also, he's fencing stolen goods and hiring the people who stay in his house to steal goods so that he can make a profit of them. 
great. What a great guy. What an absolute <laughs> fucking prime example of the human species. So the following August, this amazing individual, this, this is 1870, purchases 105 Callow Hill Street. I actually looked into the deeds of this and there's this really weird deed swapping that goes on when he's buying 105 and I don't understand it at all, but there are these two German couples that also at some point have the deed and then eventually Entwistle takes them over and it looks like some shady shit, but I can't, I don't understand it. I don't understand what's going on. And I mean, look, everybody hates when one of those neighbors moves in. Mm -hmm. You can always tell when like the crazy moves in, but it's not like this was a particularly good neighborhood that he was moving into anyway. Right. There was already a bunch of crime happening in our neighborhood by 1870. I mean, Probst happened in 1866, and clearly the neighborhood was depressed and an area of the city that was not particularly well regulated, shall we say. (laughs) And through the magic of the internet, we have a few reports. Some wonderfully written police reports from 1870 and 1871. I'll start off with one. Yesterday afternoon, before Alderman Becker at the Central Station, a young man named John Gallup had a hearing upon the charge of the larceny of a watch and a chain. He was arrested on Monday night at Front and Callow Hill Streets for the offense and locked up. I get the feeling that a watch and chain was kind of the equivalent of a cell phone. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you look at watches from the day. Right. I just mean like, you know, a thing to steal. If you're mugging someone, you go for the cell phone and it's the equivalent of stealing someone's watch and chain, you know? That's a good point. Yeah. Another one. Peter Hogan, residing at 400 Front Street, this is the house (laughs) next door to us, had so forgotten his manhood as to cruelly beat his wife. The end. Mm. Good. Mary Jones, for stealing a petticoat from a house at Front and Callow Hill Streets, has been sent by Alderman Toland to Moyamensing for 30 days. Martin Oliver, Irish, drunk and impudent. (laughs) You get all the good ones. (laughs) Amused Amused himself. himself. (laughs) Amused himself on Monday afternoon by beating his wife at their residence, Front and Callow Hill Streets. Margaret Culp was arrested on Thursday night for the larceny of a watch Mm -hmm. from a man named John Burton at Front and Callow Hill Streets. Hmm. When arraigned before Alderman Cahill, She positively denied having stolen the watch, but as it dropped on the floor just as she was speaking, she was compelled to confess her guilt. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like an episode of Cops. Amazing. Um, A German named Weiss from Bucks County recently arrived in this city on a visit. Having a great deal of money in his possession, he thought he would have a good time (laughs) and going into several saloons imbibed quite freely until he had become very drunk. In his wanderings, having reached Front and Callow Hill Streets, he was there met by some men who relieved him of the sum of $16 in money and a silver watch. Yeah, everybody had watches and everybody wanted watches. Right, and they're just getting mugged for their watches constantly. So, yeah, so this was a shit neighborhood. (laughs) It wasn't a good place. This is a lot. Don't bring your watch to Front and Callow Hill Street, (laughs) especially if you get drunk. Yeah, don't, don't do that. It's a really stupid idea. Now, of course, we wouldn't have reports of this activity if it weren't for the police department uh, having a presence down there as well. A friend of ours, Michelle Grant, shared a tweet with me that the Philadelphia Police Department posted about 
an officer who was murdered in 1870 on June 14th. He was actually down at Water and Callow Hill Streets, which is not even a block away. It's a house distance. There's Water Street, there's Front Street, and then there's our house. Policeman Dennis Sullivan was hanging out off duty with his son when he tried to intervene in a row that was going on. There were a a couple of dudes who were fighting, and as sometimes happens, when you get in between two people fighting, they turn their efforts both towards you. He was beaten quite severely and did not survive his injuries. Two of the alleged assailants, James Cleggett, Cleggsit, I don't know, and James Mahoney, uh, were arrested. Yeah. (laughs) Drunk Irishman. Oh, no. Dirty immigrants. (laughs) They're not sending their best. Oh, yeah. There was also a James Duffy (gasps) in custody, uh, uh, apparently having been concerned with the affair. This is something that just indicates it was so bad in this neighborhood, they were murdering freaking cops. Not great. (laughs) So this is the neighborhood that this Entwistle character decided to move into. Yeah, before Entwistle bought 105 Callow Hill, it was actually a fairly respectable home and Mm -hmm. a shop for a family of sale makers. And Entwistle converted it into a cheap boarding house. Great. And it wasn't long after that that 105 Callow Hill starts appearing in the papers. <laughs> the address just starts appearing in the papers over and over and over again. It started kind of small. A man named Neil Nugent, aged 30 years old, fell out of a third-story window and was severely injured in July of 1871. I mean, maybe it was an accident. Maybe, or maybe not. Uh, Two months later, there's a report. Quote, A man named William Entwistle takes lodgers for 15 cents per night at the home, number 105 Callow Hill Street, of which he is proprietor. On Sunday, one of his boarders was unwilling to pay for something. Entwistle beat the man on the head with a baseball (laughs) bat he had in his hand at the time, injuring him seriously. Two months after that, 105 Callow Hill Street had become, quote, a thieves' den. John Harrison, Frank Thompson, and Robert Jones were charged with several robberies at Chestnut Hill. They were captured yesterday while leaving an alleged thieves' den at number 105 Callow Hill Street. They had been seen together with several bundles, which contained stolen articles. Mary Morris, a woman, an Irish woman, (laughs) clearly (laughs) residing in the house, was sent to a pawnbroker's nearby before they left, and she pawned a number of those articles. A thieves' den. That's exciting in a modern context where a thieves' den sounds like pirate shit. Right. I mean, I've I've had annoying neighbors, but... A thieves' den. No thieves' dens. The following July in 1872, Entwistle and his wife, Susan, oh my God, we have another woman involved here, were arrested, the two of them, on the charge of keeping a disorderly house. Disorderly house is not something that you should take literally. It does not mean that they needed to tidy up. It means that they were keeping a brothel. They were... <laughs> For the next decade, the papers are littered with stories of crimes involving either one of five Callow Hill or 400 Front every few months. Mostly thefts, robberies, and assaults are combinations thereof. Uh, 400 Front Street is named as Hedig's Saloon. Sounds German. uh, Immigrants. uh, In 1874, when its windows were smashed by a man named Albert Sauter. German. 
I, seriously. I don't, Germans. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, really, if if we were to list all the press mentions and we were able to find a whole lot yeah, online. Yeah, so much petty crime and not so petty crime. But we would be here all day if we talked about all of those. So let's just, let's just go to the deaths. Yeah, the deaths are the big ones, right? That's all everyone wants to hear about deaths. So here we go. In 1873, December the 8th, Guido Haug? Or Guy, how do you say Guido in German? I don't know. It's It, it could be Guido. Guido? G-U-I-D-O. G-U-Y-D-O is how it's spelled in the paper. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, Mr. Haug, aged 56 years, died at his residence at 400 Front Street from injuries received by falling downstairs. Okay, well, that might not be a murder. (sighs) Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Oh, he he could have just been drunk. Leonard F. Dunn, a.k.a. Joshua Leonard, naturally, Hmm. of Delaware, was found dead with wounds on his head and hands on one of the upper floors of 105 Callow Hill Street on March 20, 1875. A six-foot-tall man with black curly hair and a full set of whiskers and a fair complexion, he had been staying at the boarding house for two weeks. A post-mortem examination gave cause of death as a fracture of the skull and profuse intracranial hemorrhage. Eight fellow boarders at the house were arrested, though four were later released. It was reported that he might have been involved at a fight at the tavern in the neighborhood, probably 400 Front Street, the night before. Mrs. Gwynevin, no first name given, about 40 years old, was murdered by her husband on the second story of 105 Callow Hill Street on 21st of July, 1875. John Gwynevin... They sound very Irish, don't they? Who was so- who was somewhat older than his wife was a longshoreman who arrived home from work at noon to find his wife drunk, as was her frequent habit. <laughs> very <laughs> Jesus Christ. They got into an argument which ended when he beat her to death with a cedar shingle, hitting her so hard that it broke in two. A roommate, Annie Ackley, witnessed the murder and raised the alarm. Neighbours reported that both Gwynevans were frequently in trouble with the law. I love the, like, you know, the sort of implied moralizing here. Right, right. You know, she was drunk. He was a lot older than her, and the two of them were constantly in trouble with the law. They were trouble. No wonder she's dead by his hands. This is like the modern-day obsession with Florida man or whatever. It's like... (laughs) Callow Hill man. Yeah, right. Isaac Seeley, aged 64, died suddenly at 105 Callow Hill Street, 3rd of May, 1877. No further details given. (laughs) An unidentified man, aged 65 years, was found dead in bed at 105 Callow Hill Street on 6th of April, 1881. And what comes next are three stories, which are probably the best, best, best. So we saved the best for last. The best ones of the lot? Best slash worst ones of the lot? Um, what order are we going to do this in? I'm going to do I'm gonna do Tom King first because it's a real bummer. Right, so we go three, one, two. Yeah, I mean, they're all bummers, but this is the biggest bummer. Yeah. Okay, Tom King, a baby only 10 days old, was accidentally smothered by his mother while she was intoxicated at Entwistle's Lodging House, 105 Callow Hill Street, on September 11th, 1882. The coroner found a remarkable spectacle upon investigation. 30 lodgers were passed out drunk in 12 rooms and a cellar. Keep in mind the footprint of the building 
was like 16 feet by 30 feet. Right. And the rooms were really small. There were only three stories. So each floor had to have four rooms in it. And there were just people littered around these rooms, passed out and drunk. The quote in the paper is that it was found impossible to rouse the unfortunate mother sufficiently to make her comprehend anything more than that her child was dead. She merely muttered, I want its death warrant. And to inquiries where she lived and who her husband was, she replied that she did not know. The death warrant was refused and the mother was told to attend the inquest. Mother of the Year, 1882. Well, I also have... I also have questions about whether it was an accidental smothering because people in terrible situations would commit infanticide all the time. So, you know, this is just an awful story that clearly was sensational to some degree because they printed all of this in the paper. Okay, bummer of a story. (laughs) Let's talk about, um, I don't know, it's still a bummer, but it's a weird story. Yeah, I mean, these are all bummers. We're on the death portion of this conversation. But But this is like ludicrous as well. This stands out. An unidentified female skeleton was found in a well at 400 Front Street on January 22nd, 1880, along with a pistol, a knife, and a hatchet. Okay, so hold up a second here. So 400 Front Street is right next door, and there was a little yard in back. So it's literally the well right next to our house, and they find a skeleton in it. You don't put a skeleton in a well. You put a person in a well. And then it becomes a skeleton. So the obvious logical conclusion here is that the people who lived in our house and 400 and whoever else used this well had been drinking this woman until she became a skeleton. Blech. Good, good. Well, no wonder everyone's an alcoholic. I would be a fucking alcoholic too. Yeah. (laughs) There's no way I'd touch the well water. (laughs) Suddenly it seems like a great idea that there's a bar around the corner. Oh my God. Only (laughs) drink alcohol. No way should you touch water. Absolutely not. Nope. Um, So what did they think happened to the woman? Well, the theories included that the woman was a tramp who had disappeared after reporting being threatened by a well-known ruffian. Oh, a ruffian. Okay. Uh, Yes, yes. A well-known ruffian. Mm -hmm. Who's Who's not being named, but he's (laughs) well-known. Uh, alternatively, they thought that the remains were portions of a body dissected by two med student brothers yes! <laughs> who had previously occupied the house. I don't really buy that because I don't think med students use pistols to dissect bodies. Wow. I love it. Body snatches. Yeah. Right? It so, was the era. Right. Absolutely. So for those of you who don't know, medical students at the time wanted to do dissections on bodies, but most people wouldn't allow themselves to be dissected. So there was a rip-roaring trade in digging up freshly interred corpses from cemeteries in order to perform medical experiments on them. Alternatively, you could perform medical experiments legally on people who were executed, which is why Antoine Probst in the previous episode, and uh, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning of this episode, had an autopsy done and all of these bizarre medical experiments performed. I love that one where they're trying to use his eyes as film. Yeah. Anyway. Good. <laughs> With the hood over his head. You I- know, you got to start somewhere as a med student. you got to get right in there. <laughs> so I think tying into actually the unsung 
project okay. is this next one. This is my favorite story about this period uh, because it directly involves our property. It's for once not about either of the properties next door, 400 Front or 105 Callow Hill Street. And I think it's a story that's well worth telling because there's stuff in it that was not told right, that was unsung, as you might say. Alice Tierney, a 45-year-old prostitute living at 105 Callow Hill Street, was found dead hanging on a fence in the rear of 103 Callow Hill Street on 27th of January, 1880. She had been drinking with a number of women in one of the rooms at 103 Callow Hill Street. So we can assume from that that she was drinking in the tenement building in the rear of our property. So at the front of our property was kind of a nicer house. And then just behind that house, there were these shitty builder grade, we call them rented out apartments. Mm -hmm. She was drinking with these women and had gone out to get more liquor. This was reported in the paper. It was supposed she attempted to climb the fence between the two properties when her clothing became tangled and she was accidentally strangled and found hanging on the fence. Hmm. Okay. Bullshit. (laughs) Absolute fucking bullshit. Alice Tierney. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There is so much that's illogical about this story that I'm, you know, I mean, it's from 1880. So... I guess that people wouldn't have been very interested in investigating the true causes of a prostitute or a sex worker's death in 1880. Jack the Ripper wasn't until 1888. So we were some time off from that. And even those Jack the Ripper crimes, you know, people didn't care as much as they should have because they were sex workers who were being attacked. I've been wearing dresses my whole life and I've even worn some period dresses. And there's a couple of things wrong with this story. First of all, if you're wearing an 1880s dress with the petticoats and the corsetry and the whatever, you're not climbing a fence. You just, you don't try to climb a fence. There was a a lane that she could have easily walked through to get out to the front of the property and then walked, you know, 16 feet to get to 105 Callow Hill Street. That would have been very easily done. So there's that side of things. Secondly, I don't think that you can have your clothing tangled up around your neck as you're climbing a fence in such a way that you're accidentally strangled to death climbing over a fence. Like, that is so intensely difficult to do. Like, how how exactly does that work? Yeah, I think it would even be more difficult if you were drunk. <laughs> Right, it does. None of this makes any sense. I'm telling you now, this woman was fucking killed. She was murdered and strung up on the fence on the back of our property. And immediately her death was explained away as an accident and nobody wanted to know who killed her. And But she was. She was fucking murdered. Oh, definitely. She was fucking definitely. murdered. And I'm, for all we know, it was a serial killer. Or, you know... I. Who who even knows? But, you know, there was no other explanation. She left the house and the next thing is she turns up dead, hanging from the back fence of our property. Like, that's horrifying. And it's horrifying to me that nobody cared enough to investigate and that it was written off in the paper as a drunken accident because I'm so sure, I am so sure that Alice Tierney was killed deliberately. So... I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with this 
piece of information, but I do know that I have some incredibly talented friends. Uh, one of my friends, Josh Hitchens, is an amazing performer and playwright who specializes in these kinds of dark topics. He has an amazing one-person play uh, about Jeffrey Dahmer. I think it's just called Dharma, which uh, has been doing the rounds, and I saw him perform it once in Kyle Cassidy's crawl space and it was the, <laughs> one of the creepiest performances we've ever seen and I am really hoping that he or perhaps another playwright in town will collaborate with us at a future date when the theatre is a proper theatre and we will create a narrative and a show that gives Alice Tierney some of the recognition and justice that I believe she deserves. Oh, that'd be great. I think it would be really great because, uh you know, Man, where is her ghost? <laughs> I'm Ghost Bane. Ghosts um I've been told I've been told by people who are sensitive to ghosts that there is something about me that chases ghosts right out of a fucking room. Like I come into a room and whatever woo-woo spirits were in the room just fuck off as soon as I come in the room. I don't know what it is about like I just have I'm Ghost Bane. It's my it's my superpower. So I will never see her, but you know, maybe someone else will and can tell her story. Who knows? Now, what's kind of amazing to me is amidst all of this murder, death, and beatings, uh, John Entwistle... William Entwistle. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you always do that. <laughs> Not the bassist from The Who. <laughs> the terrible Englishman who beats his wife oh, uh, no. in the 1800s. Um, William Entwistle uh -huh. uh, actually listed his boarding house in a visitor's hotel guide that was put out by uh, a Samuel Smirk. Oh my god. In, in That's also an amazing Dickensian <laughs> name. What are these people? <laughs> I'm Sammy Smirk. <laughs> Here's my hotel guide. <laughs> Do you trust me? <laughs> so the, the uh, Centennial Exposition famously happened in 1876 um, and was America's first World's Fair. Uh, this happened mostly in West Philadelphia right. because... In what's now called Centennial Park. Yeah, because the Philadelphia that people saw pictures of 100 years ago was now a murder zone, so <laughs> they just kept pushing west. Um, obviously, the list was completely uncurated. Entwistle must have just paid to get into this tourist guide because nobody worth their salt would have recommended staying with him. <laughs> <laughs> stay stay at beautiful Entwistle's boarding house. Could you imagine, like, getting this guide? Like, you, you've traveled from right. around the country right, or right. around the world. Sure. Visiting Philadelphia. Philadelphia, this amazing city, and you, you're like, I don't know anything about this town. Where should I stay? <laughs> I'll look at this booklet who, oh. to get some recommendations. Oh, that sounds nice. It's by the river. Right. Entwistle's boarding house. That sounds oh great. God, must have been awful. <laughs> I wonder if anybody <laughs> bought it. And then you get here and, and Whistle greets you at the door with a baseball bat. And it like, just like robs you. <laughs> well, you know, at least he didn't establish a murder house like H.H. Homestead in the, uh, what was it, like 1893 World's Fair? I guess like, this is why we don't have World's Fairs in America anymore. Right. <laughs> really right place to get murdered is at the World's Fair. You could get beaten, murdered, robbed, you know, whatever. Yeah, I think we're talking about A.J. Holmes, right? Yeah. Even though most of his murders took place in Chicago, he actually wrapped up his life in Philadelphia. Yeah, he's, there's a huge H.H. H. Holmes Philadelphia connection. We talked about the Callow Hill neighborhood where that sound installation Unsung was put up. 
He committed a murder there. He murdered his business partner. What is it? Um, Benjamin Pietzel, I think is his name, at 1316 Callow Hill Street, which is a mile west of our building. Mm-hmm. And that murder is the reason why a Philadelphia Pinkerton detective from mm. the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which on some level is like, oh, cool, a detective agency, and on some other levels is like, they beat up union people. What a bunch of assholes. Um, you know, the Pinkertons are still actually upset about people being upset about that. Uh, yeah. They, well, they recently sued, I think it was Red Dead Redemption. Oh, like, shit, mentioned really? the Pinkertons. Yeah. And even though it's in all of this fiction and, and historical fiction and honestly... Television Yeah, lots of people portray the Pinkertons as they were, which was pretty awful. Right. Um, For some reason, they decided to take up arms against this video game for portraying them in a bad light. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't sue us. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, it was that murder in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Pinkerton detective who caught up with H.H. Holmes. And he was extradited back to Philadelphia and tried here and found guilty and hanged in Moyamensing Prison in 1896, the same place where Antoine Probst was at the end of a rope 30 years earlier. And the same place where you can get great deals on shopping at Acme. That's right. They (laughs) knocked it down and it's now in Acme. You can buy your groceries there. How nice. Anyway, back to 105 Callow Hill Street and William Entwistle. He eventually sold the property in 1884. And what's really interesting is that after he sells, the newspaper reports of violent deaths on our block almost immediately just stop. <laughs> like, there's just no more violent deaths. It was just this motherfucker who was causing all of this violent crime in our neighborhood. He leaves and they stop. Now, even though he left and all that violence associated with him seemed to drop off the neighborhood actually took a very long time to recover industrialization continued just changing the landscape and the area became really a produce warehouse and market district by the 1890s Uh, i know deets and watson uh, got their start just a block away from here you may know them from deets nuts (laughs) (laughs) i really like that commercial i'm such a fucking (laughs) eight-year-old but Even with that going on, really, this neighborhood just languished at the dilapidated far end of the Tenderloin District here in Philly until large swaths of it were raised for what was supposed to be a redevelopment initiative. They were rethinking how they were going to build factories and commercial areas. And the, it, it just all this was is like all in, in like the 1960s, right? Yeah. 1960s urbanization. And uh, what is it? Urban planning. There's mm-hmm. there's the dirty phrase. <laughs> In the 1960s, they finally kick off the process of building the Delaware Expressway, which we now know as I-95. The 70s see the construction of 95 begin with just mass destruction of blocks and blocks and blocks of historic buildings. It's really interesting because it's now looking back, it's easy for us to say oh my God, how could you have destroyed all of that history? But I guess it's also really hard for us to conceptualize how awful these areas (laughs) were back in the 1960s and 70s. Because like some of the things that they destroyed blow my fucking mind. There's one of those blue historical plaques near here, which says, close by this plaque was a tavern where the United States Marines were invented. 
so you know how how much America lionizes its military history to think that in the 1960s and 70s they demolished the tavern where the United States Marines first convened and decided they were going to be a thing. The U.S. Marines, like the most American, American military thing, (laughs) you know, that I can think of. They destroyed that to make way for a fucking highway. I mean, that to me says a lot about what the area must have been like at the time, I guess, that they didn't even care to save that. Sure, it was the 70s. It had been, frankly, a shithole for a century at this point this is why i can't find any pictures of our house (laughs) (laughs) right it's like nobody came to this neighborhood and took pretty street scene pictures because it was really an awful place to be you probably get your camera stolen (laughs) yeah i mean it was dirty it was filthy from the factories that had propped up there Mm -hmm. were cold storage warehouses it was just not great and even continuing into this century to some degree it's kind of interesting we've been contacted and we've talked to neighbors who've lived in this area since the 1970s we've been contacted by some people who listened to this podcast or found us online and wanted to tell us about their experiences living here and the stories of weird crimes <laughs> and muggings and murders and just just weird stuff that happens fires and vacant buildings right right it w- it it was kind of a sketchy place up until even as as recently as 20 years ago but since we bought it i mean we've told the story of how the empty lot behind us sold for three times what we paid for our lot a year after we bought our lot and uh, it's so rapidly becoming a gentrified neighborhood from what was this rundown warehouse district. I don't even know if gentrified's the right word. It's like everybody had already been displaced. Right. And it just didn't fill back in. Right. It was <laughs> just kind of an empty no man's land for a while. So in 1977, 105 Callow Hill was totally demolished. To make way for the foundation of I-95. Yeah. And it's now just an empty lot. Like, the the highway isn't there. You can go walk on it and maybe investigate it for privies. But you, <laughs> but there's no building there. Uh, 400 Front Street, which was actually a pretty beautiful looking building, was updated in the 90s to a really ugly building. Yeah, they put this siding up over the mansard roof and just turned it into a very plain apartment building yeah i think we've talked about how there's a scaffolding business in the lots around us but um we've already seen plans for what's going up in those lots everything is building up really quickly it's like half million dollar luxury apartments it's absurd (laughs) they're they're not even big um so hopefully these don't turn into brothels and bars not bad brothels and bars anyway i think the days of 103 callahill street being um, a very bad place to live are well behind us, at least for the foreseeable future. This is going to be a nice theater when we build it. It's going to be nice. Nice people are going to come here and nobody's going to get murdered, but they may hear stories about people getting murdered in the past. Especially when we do a Halloween show about some of the stuff that we talked about. Yes. Oh my God. We're going to have the best Halloween events here. I swear to God, this history needs to get told in dramatic form. So that pretty much brings us up to the modern era. Uh, we, almost. <laughs> almost. Well, we're like 
Like we've we've skipped a lot of the. Well, we, we, the we're not going to talk about the '80s and the '90s because those people are still around. They're still around, and uh, as much as I'm sure there are some fascinating stories around the pasta cheese company. <laughs> um, you mean pasta cheese? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love pasta cheese? I think I could talk about pasta cheese all day. <laughs> um, I think next week we're going to get into some of our adventures. After we have become amateur archaeologists. Yeah, we're going to bring you back to where we are today and uh, where this whole theater buying, shirt digging adventure went next. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callahill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear.